you would put an ad in the paper, you would publish a classified ad. So that was traditional then. Today, what's traditional is LinkedIn. Welcome to Conversations with Connors. I'm your host, Adam Connors. Today, the term sorcerer is just a regular word, term, or position within the world of human resources that we refer to without giving it a second thought. In the upcoming podcast, we get a chance to meet the man that essentially created the term and the role that is now in almost every major corporation in America, if not the world. That man is Shally Steckerl. During our conversation, we get an opportunity to learn about Shally and all the other accomplishments that he's had like being an author, an entrepreneur, and a professor, as well as how he gives back to the community. Shelley's also a regular speaker at the HR leadership conferences all over the world and has been featured on NPR and the Wall Street Journal. Shelley's a true entrepreneur and an inspiration on so many levels. But rather than letting me tell you about it, I encourage you to listen for yourself. So stay tuned and enjoy my conversation with Shelley Stecker. Well, let's rock and roll, my friend. If you're situated, I'll start rolling with questions. I am situated. That's a beautiful thing. Well, let's get this party started. Let's talk about you, Shelly. <laughs> Not my favorite subject, but... It's a, today, it is going to be. How about that? How often do you get an opportunity where people genuinely want to hear about all the things that you've done? You're a humble <laughs> guy. So today is one of those days, and I don't know if we're going to have enough time to get through all the things that you've done, but we're going to give it a shot. What do you say? Sounds good to me. I'm so used to people asking what I can do for them. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Today is about you. There is nothing that you can do except provide just lots of insights into what's made the man. So if you don't mind, Shally, there are so many things and so many labels that I guess you fall under. How, if someone's at a cocktail party, do you describe yourself? I would say if it's a cocktail party where people that are in attendance are in the talent industry in general, human resources or recruiting or anything like that, I would identify as a recruiter slash sourcer. But if it's a completely different industry, like it's a bunch of professionals or executives in a different sector completely, I just talk about, generally speaking, the discipline of competitive intelligence research, because that's a little bit more cross-industry and that they exist in just about every kind of business you can imagine. I think you're selling yourself extremely short by just those two quick labels. I mean, what about the pioneer aspect of what you've done in terms of getting your name out there, in terms of being one of the first, I forgot how many, but you think you were within one of the first couple thousand people on LinkedIn. Not only that, that you exploited LinkedIn in a significant way and almost double their user size just by your contacts alone. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it is. I was on LinkedIn. I think I was on there from before they had their first 100,000 users. So it was definitely within the first few months of them exposing the network to the public and had already left kind of the alpha testing. So I was an early adopter. And at the time that I joined, I think there might have been about 50,000 users or certainly less than 100,000 because my original LinkedIn ID was in the 70s, 72,000 or something like that. And they started with 10,000. So there was no user one, it was user 10,000 and one. So yeah, I was in the first 70,000 users or whatnot. And I invited 60,000 people into the network in the first year. And they, of course, they brought their network and so on. But you know what? The reason that that doesn't even come up is because I've been doing this for longer than LinkedIn's been around. In fact, I've been doing this for longer than really the commercial internet has been around. So it just doesn't occur to me to use that as any kind of milestone because I've been doing it. I've been working on what I do since before LinkedIn was even invented. So that's probably why that doesn't come up. As far as pioneering the industry, when I'm with people that are in the recruiting industry, I do sometimes take the credit for having invented sourcing But people laugh when I say that because they think it's a joke. They think it's I'm being funny. And I'm like, no, actually, Google my name and you'll see. Like, You hardly ever meet someone that says, I invented something and it's not 
Al Gore saying he invented the internet, right? <laughs> I mean, so that's why I get that reaction. So it's rare that I do that. I try not to make that claim unless they are kind of in the know. And even then, it's a little bit embarrassing because they think it's funny, as in they think I'm being funny, not being serious. But yeah, I guess I should do that. <laughs> so what have been some of the results of this pioneering? I think, so you said this is all about me, and this is totally not at all what I would ever no, say. this is all about you. I need this to be you. People need to learn. They need to know. I will throw out the disclaimer that you're as humble as it gets, and I'm pulling this out of you. <laughs> so please. Right. <laughs> I really do believe I have had a massive impact on the industry that we call recruiting because there was so much misalignment and there was so much really just negative garbage about our industry when I started, I didn't know anything about it. When I, my first job as a recruiter, I had no idea that this profession even existed. At that point, it was already very maligned. It was, you hear in the business that recruiters are like used car salesmen, which is never said in a positive light. Recruiters are as good as used car salesmen. And usually it's like equating them with a greasy hair, slick, dishonest person that'll do anything for a buck. And that's how the industry was perceived. Little did I know my first year in the job, I thought, wow, this is awesome. But then of course I start listening to how we as headhunters are perceived in the market. And I think I have had a dramatic impact on legitimizing the profession in a corporate setting, bringing sourcing, which didn't exist back then, into a corporation. So just so much that I was actually at a meeting on Friday of last week in Chicago at Northwestern discussing the inclusion of sourcing as a global standard at the International Standards Organization, ISO. And I'm a member of that committee representing the United States interest with ANSI or the American National Standards Institute. And what we do as a committee to the global committee at large of ISO is we provide guidance regarding standards around human resource. So I've been working towards introducing a sourcing standard for a number of years. And yesterday, sorry, Friday was the first step in getting that voted in and the reception was really good. So I'm now at the point where I can go to a, a global standards body and say, we need to create a standard for sourcing. And they, around the room, universally said, yeah, we get it. But that's because there's 250,000 people on LinkedIn that have the job title sourcer in some form, and only 680,000 with the job title recruiter. So sourcers, the population of sourcers is now more than a third the size of the population of recruiters. Altogether, between the two of them, you're looking at about a million people in the world that have recruitment and sourcing as their job title, and sources are a third of that. So that was me. I did that. I started out in a profession where that didn't exist. I created the job of sourcer. I gave a definition. I spoke all over the world in conferences for years, keynoting and doing workshops and trying to convince people that the specialization of identifying talent is a real profession, and it's not something that is unethical or illegal or smarmy or in any way negative. It's actually a very positive part of our business and human resources, just like competitive intelligence is to marketing, just like legal researchers are to the law field in general. In, in every industry, research happens, but in ours, because the industry had such a bad rap, in ours, the part of it that related to research was considered kind of a marginal at best function. So to summarize, I think the, the industry was always dysfunctional and there's been a lot of negative aspects to the business of recruiting, especially for profit, as in third party or staffing firm or whatever. And it doesn't need to be that. In fact, I think the reason that there's such a negative connotation to it is because it was misaligned from the very beginning. So over the last 21 years, I've really driven home the point that it's legitimate, and I think there's no better proof in that than the fact that there are people that work for Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies that have the job title sourcer. If a Fortune 100 company employs a sourcer, it's, this is no longer the greasy, slick back, used car salesman analogy. This doesn't apply anymore. Congratulations, first off. That's amazing. and I'm surprised that it's just one third because a lot of the companies 
that I worked with and I was doing recruiting employed typically for every recruiter, there was an employed like at least one sorcerer, sometimes two. I would have actually expected that number to have been two-thirds sorcerer, one-third recruiter. So if not yet, it's on its way. There's probably a lot of people who call themselves other things. This was just a, a very cursory, what could I prove to a room full of global standards makers? I could do a screenshot of, look, Sorcerer produces 250 results. Recruiter produces 680. I'm sure there are plenty of other job titles that are similar to recruiter, such as recruitment consultant, and I can't name them all. So there's probably a lot more. I just did a cursory search on those two. So yeah, but you're right. It just proves the point, though. Now, and then for those who aren't familiar with that term sorcerer, what's your literally textbook definition of a sorcerer? So to me... The textbook definition, which is, of course, I wrote the textbook. <laughs> so I get to say this is what sourcing is because I actually wrote the textbook. How often do you get to do that, right? So the textbook definition, sourcing is the specialized discipline of proactively identifying and engaging with talent that is not found in traditional means or via traditional means. That's significant because sourcing essentially is the definition of what's innovation about recruiting. Historically, the role of the sorcerer has been a subsegment of the responsibilities included in recruitment, which in turn are a subsegment of the responsibilities included in talent management and in human resources as a profession. But sourcing is that specialization where we are proactively going out to finding and reaching out to and talking to people that would not consider employment with that company because they're not actively looking and they're not finding that company through whatever is considered normally a traditional or standard at the time. 20 years ago, standard would have been something like the online career center that later became monster would have been included in your standard methodologies along with classified ads, right? You remember those days we yeah. talked about that you would put an ad in the paper you would publish a classified ad. So that was traditional then. Today, what's traditional is LinkedIn. So when something that sourcing pioneers and becomes mainstream and recruiters start using it, then sourcing moves on to the next thing because the job of the sourcer is to find people that the recruiters are not finding because they either don't have the time, don't have the means, don't have the skill or the training or whatever. It's not a put down on recruiting. It's that it's a specialization. Recruiters have a lot of other things that they need to do, including finding people. So sourcing comes in when the recruiters don't have the time, the means, the bandwidth to go out and do that hard job of finding and engaging people that are not easily found. What makes a great sourcer, in your opinion, these days? Things have changed. What are some of the tools, tactics, tips that make a good sourcer? The sourcer's job description has always included the component of experimentation, taking risks and thinking outside of the traditional. So as it grows, the profession typically tends to include technology just because technology enables us to do our job, but it's not tied to technology. So sourcers are not necessarily technical people. A lot of them are because there are a lot of tools that enable us to do our job. But without technology, we could still do it. So what's changed is there's more technology to help us do our job. But what hasn't changed is we're still all about finding the unfindable. We're about making the connection lateral leaps that take us to the places where people hide, not intentionally, but where people are in their natural habitat. So sourcing has always been a job that requires a great deal of curiosity and problem solving, and more and more these days, some technological savvy, although, like I said, it's not required. Also, sourcing could include, in some cases, the ability to have strong social engineering and communication skills, but like the same as with technology, that's not required. In other words, a sourcer can be very good at what they do with or without technology, and they can be very good at what they do with or without having great social engineering and persuasion skills. But both of those all also would enhance the job. So a part of the sourcer's role is to be able to talk to people and pull information from them, like a journalist, like an investigative reporter. 
They can also do the same thing with databases like a librarian. So a sorcerer is part journalist, part librarian, part recruiter, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. You know, maybe a little bit of technologist thrown in there, too. <laughs> so funny. You mentioned 20 years ago, you mentioned Monster. I've got to assume you remember this also because I started in the business. I think it was 98, 97, somewhere around there. And the first two weeks that I was there, we were currying resumes to clients. This is in Manhattan, as well as using the fax machine. And to your point, when we had a pretty significant search, I actually used to hire librarians on the side to help and I guess, quote unquote, help me source without realizing that that's what they were doing. Exactly. So you've written a couple books regarding sourcing, correct? That's right. Can you tell me about the latest book that's coming out? The latest book is actually out and it's on our website. The website is tsi-corp.com. The TSI stands for The Sourcing Institute, but we are no longer calling ourselves The Sourcing Institute for a number of reasons. Uh, we've kind of, like a lot of other companies, rebranded and kept our initials. So TSI-Corp, and if you go there, you'll see. The book is called The Sourcing Method, and what's different about this book from the previous sourcing-related books is th the first one that I did was really more of a research report on breaking news. There's this new discipline called sourcing, and it included things like a glossary and a catalog of all the different tools that were available at the time. It really was a research report. The second one was much more of a book where it tried to tie the concepts together, still by the same publisher. They decided, that publisher decided to move away from being a research report slash book publisher. So I ended up going with another publisher. And with that publisher, we created the third version, which was an entirely different book, still the same fundamentals and still about sourcing, but it was called the Talent Sourcing and Recruitment Handbook. And that ended up being more of a tome, more of a desktop reference. And actually, I used it as my textbook when I taught at Brandman University and Temple University when I taught the recruiting curriculum. So it became more of a textbook. Then this version is a real book. You can pick it up. You can read it front to back. It is a story that unfolds. It is all nonfiction, mind you, but it really goes through the genesis of how sourcing is really sui generis, how it is a subject matter onto its own, a specialized discipline, how it came about, and then launches into the method, which is a series of workflows that help you organize the activity and the concepts around identifying talent because it's a lot more complicated than it used to be. Who's the audience? Yeah, the audience for this book is anyone who is searching for talent. And that's the biggest difference, I think, between the audience for this book and all the others. The first book was written for people that were in the recruiting industry and didn't know sourcing. And it was like, hey, look, there's this new thing called sourcing. The audience for the second book was much the same, but more refined, more educated. So a deeper dive and more content. The third book, the audience for that was essentially recruiters that wanted to learn and also people that were in the HR discipline that wanted to learn the science of sourcing. This one is for anyone that is looking for people. So it can be translated to finding other members for your organization, finding people that owe you money. It can be really translated to a lot of other things. It's not written for that audience, but it works. For Let's talk about that for a second, because I think that's a really good point that you bring up about how sourcing is a skill set that translates not just to recruiting. Do you mind kind of going on a tangent for a second on this one? Not at all. Let's just use that money for a person. Let's just say someone owes you money. What is it that you're teaching that some of these other, I guess, investigative reporters or sleuths or whoever it is out there, what aren't they doing that you're teaching? So part two of the book, which starts basically in page 39, part one is really just the definition for the industry. So if you skipped part one and went right to page 39, that would be where you actually start the process of research. And it begins with understanding and defining the need. What is it that you're really looking for? And we offer some methods in the book on how to figure out what you're looking for. Because if you start out and you don't really know what it is that you want to find, that's the number one biggest failure 
on all things related to research is you end up getting lost by following all the rabbit holes and all the false trails to all the information that you thought maybe you would want to look at, but it wasn't really what you originally wanted. So we call that the pre-search. It's the activity that you conduct to define what you really want to find. And then we launch into calibration. So now you know what you want to find. Is that findable? Are you really going to find it using what you expect? Is it going to deliver on what you expect? Then we launch from there into the activity of research divided up into six parts. And those six parts are very distinct. The first of those are the steps. Here's how you split up the activity. Here's how you chop up the process of the search, which includes things like what are the keywords that you're going to need to use? Because the keywords that you think you're going to use or the keywords that you think appear on the content that you want to find are not always the same as what you actually get. So it's a validation process. It explains the logic of search, the commands. Then moving on to part two, it talks about search engines and how they work. Part three goes into some very specific advanced commands on the number one through four most commonly used search engines. So Google, Bing, Exalead, and Gigablast. Then part four are the advanced techniques. That's where you start digging into like identifying people based on search engines that look at headshots and search engines that do deep web research. Part five then goes into social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, and so on. And then part six is about tracking all of that because Another problem, not as important as the first one I mentioned, but the other problem that happens is you lose track. So not only do you tend to kind of get distracted and follow all the rabbit holes, but you also end up circling around and following your own footsteps and then reinventing the wheel. So part six is about not to do that. It's about tracking where you've been so you can go to the places that worked when you need to again, and also so you don't go to the places that didn't work next time, and so you don't repeat the things you've already done on the same search. Then there's another component that has to do with reaching out. And now that is, how do you find contact information? How do you get through all the spam blockers? How do you use texting and Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter to reach people that are not really paying attention to some of the other channels? I mean, everyone has their own flavor these days. You and I might like email, but the next person prefers texting and the person after that prefers to be communicated with via Facebook. And we... As the researcher, it is prejudicial and I think also discriminatory for us to assume that someone wants to be communicated with in a particular way. So by me simply using email and only email, I'm essentially committing the crime of being prejudiced because I'm assuming you're going to communicate via email. Maybe you don't like email. It's not up to me to decide how you want to be communicated with, but it is up to me to figure out what all the different ways are for me to communicate with you and find out which one of those you're going to respond to. I can't determine if you're a Facebook communicator, a Twitter communicator, a texter, or an emailer until I actually communicate with you in all four of those and figure it out. I have to ask you, how do you prefer to be communicated with? It didn't used to be that way because we only had one choice, face-to-face. But then came the telegraph and print media and radio and television and now email and phone calls are part of the internet as well as texting and things that are not necessarily texting, but do go through the phone, your Facebook messaging and all that. So maybe we didn't used to have to ask someone, Adam, when I communicate with you, what is your preferred method of communication? Because a hundred years ago, you'd be like, what are you talking about? You got it face to face, right? There's no choice, but we have to ask that question now. How do you prefer to be communicated with? And if you don't know, and you make the assumption, and you email someone, and you never get a response, it's not because Adam isn't responding. It's because Adam doesn't check his email. Or maybe Adam doesn't like email. Maybe Adam is a texter. Maybe Adam is dyslexic and doesn't really like to write things down. Maybe he prefers a phone call. I don't know that. So communication is a part of that. That's a great point. And then the third segment of the book really gets into your habits for success, working habits. How do you work remotely? How do you manage the life of a researcher, right? Which can apply to recruiting as well as it can apply to a lot of other things. Apologies for interrupting this conversation, especially if you're really enjoying it. I know that I get frustrated when I'm listening to a good podcast, so I'll make it quick. 
If you're enjoying our podcast, please support us on patreon.com slash networkwise. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts and exclusive networking advice. Okay, that was painless. So all you have to do now is help us on Patreon and enjoy the remainder of the show. So this book sounds like a labor of love. How long did it take you? Well, that's, I would say 20 years because I wouldn't have gotten to this one had I not done all this work. And I wouldn't really arrive at this book had I not also written the other three that came before. How long was what it take? So what you just talked about for the layman that's not familiar with recruiting, you've just packed a ton of information into one book. How long does it typically take somebody to really kind of, I'm sure getting the genesis is one thing, but really being able to implement and utilize some of these things that you're teaching. How long does it typically take somebody? When we pick up as part of our foundation, the 501c3, we pick up people that are entering the industry and have no experience in recruiting or sourcing. They could have had a career or several careers already, but did not do this for a living. Usually takes those people somewhere around 30 to 60 days to be productive in this function and start doing the job. Now, that doesn't mean mastery, but I think your question is more about from the moment you get into this, pick up the book and figure out you want to do this, how long does it take to where you actually can start doing it? Really 30 days. If you're taking a month off and saying, I want to learn this, you can do it in a month. But if you have another job, it's probably going to take you 60 or 90 days in between other things that you've got going on. But that's really it. And then from there, it's a matter of mastery. It's all the mistakes that you have to make in order to learn the lessons that can't be taught in any book. You mentioned something that I'd like to talk a little bit more about. You mentioned a 501c3. Can you expand on that? Because I think what you're doing is really special for a variety of reasons. Rather than steal your thunder, I want you to explain it. So the sourcing foundation came about because we found through our business that we had already kind of done the work of the foundation for many years before we decided to go forward and establish it. It was originally established in 2015. The primary mission for the foundation is to provide education grants for the learning of talent sourcing in recruitment. So the idea was, let's take what we know about the industry and provide that to people that have been displaced or are in other situations where they could use the benefit of this learning and improve their lives, improve their employability and so on. So that was the beginning of it in 2015 as an actual 501c3. But for many years before that, we had picked up special cases, people that were acquaintances or friends of a friend that were introduced to us where they didn't have the means to pay for this education because as a for-profit company, we teach this. We teach people how to do this. And we had taken on some apprentices, so to speak, pro bono, because we wanted to help those people out and they were deserving of it, but they simply just couldn't scratch together the means to do it, understandably so, given their situation. So for many years, we picked up a handful of these, three, four, five of them a year, and unofficially sponsored them through the program. And they were successful, really successful. And many of them have, I've got a bunch of stories of these scholarship recipients from before the foundation started that are very inspiring. Someone who had lost their entire life's, their career pretty much because of a change in the industry. They owned print shops, lots of them. I mean, major ones, like they did print jobs for large magazines and the printing industry took a big hit with internet printing and print on demand. That's why you don't see a lot of those print shops around anymore. And so they lost everything. I mean, they lost their house, they lost their entire business, they went bankrupt and that's all they'd ever done. So it was a really desperate situation. Well, we picked them up, taught them all this, and now they're making six figures, bought a house, and are back where they wanted to be professionally. And we have a lot of stories like that. So after several of these, and I said several, I mean dozens of them, my business partner and I thought, this is a thing. Like, we can actually, we should do this for real, like legitimate. And that's where the foundation the idea for the foundation came about. We went and we got our IRS certification as a 501c3, put up a website and started 
taking on officially applications from people who wanted to receive the grants and scholarships in order to get into this business. And now the foundation's charters have extended to a couple of other missions as well. So in addition to our main mission, which is really to directly address unemployment by providing sourcing and recruiting education to people that are displaced, we also added a couple of others. And we've honed in on which communities are best served by the foundation. We identified that military veterans coming from active duty, particularly female veterans, although we don't make that distinction in gender, but female veterans have the largest need. And also military spouses can benefit greatly from this program. We also came to the realization through results and experiences in putting people back to work that blind and hearing impaired, deaf and hard of hearing and blind and visually impaired people made uh, really good progress with this curriculum. So those became our focus for our mission. We don't turn away people with other abilities or people in other display situations, but those are the ones that we focus on when we pursue relationships with organizations that we can partner with. And we have to partner with them because we do not want to be in the business as a foundation of making the distinction as to who's deserving of our support. So instead, we work through a already created organization, an entity that has years of experience in identifying who are the people that really do truly need the help and are going to get results. And then we work with those organizations and provide the actual curriculum. But then there's also two other charters. The other charters include the component of adding this discipline of recruiting and sourcing to academic curriculum. And through that, we have developed relationships with the universities that are now beginning to teach courses in recruiting for credit in their human resources program. And that's not something that you remember when you and I would talk about the business. would be like, nobody ever goes to school to be a recruiter. Well, that's changing, and it's changing because of our effort. And others as well, but we are definitely a factor. The foundation is a factor in driving the inclusion of recruiting and sourcing as an academic area in human resources programs. So people will be and have already graduated with the intention of when I get out of this school, I'm going to go to work as a recruiter. Maybe I want a career in HR, but I'm going to start out as a recruiter. And that never happened before. So that's the second charter. And then the third charter is to lift the entire industry by helping drive the standardization of the role, which is why I'm involved with ISO, to really help create a global standard that legitimizes and certifies the industry and makes it something that employers take seriously, where you're not going to just be like, oh, sourcing, that's a temporary thing that you do when you want to grow up and be a recruiter. We really are now driving sourcing as an actual career. So that's the third charter of the foundation as well. How are you finding time to do all these things? I mean, you got this major business, you're writing a book, you've got these nonprofits, you're going 24-7. How are you doing this? I'm going 24-7. That's part of it. Another part of it is I have a very supportive family. My wife used to be uh, part of, when I originally created the Sourcing Institute, she was part of the organization and helped us with a lot of the groundwork for that business. Before that, there was a company that she and I founded in the 90s, which was called Job Machine, and that was the first business that did this. So she's been with me since the late 90s and, in fact, was a co-founder of that business. So she's been not only supportive, but actually instrumental in creating all this. She's not as involved in it or really very much involved at all anymore. Now we have two little ones, eight and 10, and we now have the means to be able to employ people where she used to kind of do it as a, not as a volunteer, because she and I did get paid for the work that we did, but it wasn't supposed to be her job. She was just helping me out. So now we actually have the means to hire people. And in that regard, I'm also very lucky and very grateful to have a couple of business partners that are running some of these things for me and are very good and very passionate and also very professional and loyal to the cause. So I have the support of someone that helps us run the foundation and someone that helps us run the business of the education component. And you also met Courtney, who works with us in an operational capacity and helps make a lot of things possible. So I found good people. Yeah, Courtney's great, by the way. Thank you. Yes, that's a big part of it. So my wife and Courtney and Rob and Joe and other members of the team that make it possible. 
And also, I'm not going to lie to you, there's a piece of this that has to do with time being something that you can make. You can make time for what's important. And I think that concept is really alien to a lot of people. You hear a lot of, I don't have the time as a, I don't want to say an excuse because I don't know if it's always meant as an excuse, but it's certainly a crutch or a an explanation that can be easily given to dismiss why you're not doing something. And I think if you really care about something and it's important, you find the time and you make the time to do it and you work smart. It's not about always grinding it out. If you grind it out and you work hard, but you don't work smart, you don't have as much time to do the things that you need to do. So part of this has been really becoming efficient at what I do, utilizing, leveraging tools and technology, really trusting others and allowing them to grow and do the things that they need to do in order to move the the cause forward. So it's a lot of things. It's the right people. It's the right attitude. It's being personally efficient and finding the tools. For me, for example, I use Evernote as a productivity tool and it helps me keep everything organized. So I don't need to spend a lot of time sorting and filing and looking things up and all that because Evernote helps me with that. doesn't mean it's going to help everybody, but it's how I work. So there's those kinds of things. There's the ability to work remotely and travel with the systems nowadays that help us put everything in the cloud. So I could be at karate camp and still make a phone call and still check in and make decisions and move things forward. I don't need to be physically in the office. And so that's another way that we can make time. But at the same time, it can also be a risk in that if you do too much of it and don't make the other time that you need to recharge your batteries, to spend time with your family, you end up actually working harder and don't get as much done. So there's a give and take there. The ability to work remotely means I can take a month off and go to Maine and be with my family. But I also make sure that while I'm there, I set aside some hours to get some work done because what I don't want to do is come back from that and end up being behind and so many other things that I'll spend the next month doing nothing but working and not spending time with my family. It's a give and take. Yeah. Outside of your family, what do you do in your personal time? What do you do for fun? I really don't do anything for fun that doesn't involve the family right now. It's This is a good time for me to spend time with the kids. They're at that age, eight and 10, where it's very enjoyable to talk to them. And I'm very lucky that they're both good kids and we can spend good quality time together. So I'm doing a lot of that. Excellent. If there were moments where I could have some alone time and some downtime, there are some things that I really enjoy. Scuba diving. But unfortunately, that is not something that until the kids get a little bit bigger, once they're of the age where we could go on a family vacation and scuba diving was available to me, I would be able to break off and go for a scuba dive. But right now, they're just not of the age where we could go to places that are scuba diving capable, let's just say, where they would also be able to have fun. We would go to a scuba diving resort and they'd be bored 90% of the time. So that's really not viable at this moment, but it will be. So there's things like that. I guess another thing that I would really like to do more of personally would be to be a little bit more involved with martial arts because I did that for many, many years and I've had to drop it. It's one of the things that I had to drop doing because I wanted to make the time for the kids, the foundation, the business and all that. So I think I'll be able to get back to that once some of the other more critical things have taken some shape and are able to function on their own. So, you know, you have to kind of give and take a little bit. Right now, I'm just not in a phase where I can do a lot of solo things that are fun just for me, other than when I'm with the family and I can break away. Like at the recent vacation we were for Father's Day, I was with the family 80% of the time, but I did take a couple hours to go and do, you know, spend some time in the hot tub or do an activity that was just for dad. (laughs) You know, a little bit of that kind of stuff. To switch gears a, a minute, I'd love to know. Who, if anyone, has had a ma- outside of your family, I should say, that's had a major impact in your life? A lot of people. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say I'm product of many people who have taken risks and trusted me and given me responsibilities that allowed me to grow. So it's a very, very long list. I think starting with when I was really just getting into the business world, I had a mentor named Harriet McCormick 
that taught me a lot about recruitment in the late 90s. She's unfortunately since passed, but she was a great mentor in a lot of ways, professionally and also in the industry of recruitment. I've had mentors in the area of sourcing. There was an individual that prefers to remain anonymous who was instrumental in building my capabilities as a reverse engineer and a researcher. They also passed. They passed away from cancer. And they were a very reserved, very private individual that quietly impacted the world in a way that I think the world will never know because they created a lot of people like me. They enabled a lot of people like me to go out and ask these tough questions. So there's definitely a great deal of official and unofficial mentors. Going way back to when I was growing up, I had some tough love from martial arts instructors and in college, some tough love from elders in my university and professors and things like that. The list is really too long to just... <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question. I could write a book on that. <laughs> it you know? really is. I'm going to throw another tough question at you then. Who is the most impressive person that you know that would pick up your phone call right now? Again, outside the family. Someone that's one way, shape, or form just really impressed you. And what is it about that person that impresses you? One person. That would be really impressive that if I called, they would answer right now. Yeah, correct. That also happens to be someone of renown. Um, no, no, not necessarily. It's, you know, it's renowned to you. I think some of the best ones are actually ones that maybe, like you said, they kind of stay under the radar. Yeah. Um, but again, maybe they're the ones that might have made the man, so to speak. You know, here you are, this pioneer in this space that's going to go on. You've left an eternal mark on an industry. So maybe there was someone that was kind of the, what's that song with Ben Miller, the wind beneath your wings. The wind beneath my wings. That's a really tough one. So in the third book, there was a segment that I wrote in there called Hat Tips. In that book, the Hat Tips section, this is going back to 2016, I believe, had a list of names of people that had very pronounced impact in not just the book, but in my career in general, there's a good list there. There's a gentleman by the name of Stephen Pizer, P-Y-S-E-R, who was key in helping me navigate the job of being a college professor. To me, one of the most significant achievements, let me say three things that I think are what should go in my epitaph, right? Number one, I helped create or maybe even whatever credit you want to give me, but I brought sourcing into the world, right? So that's number one. Number two, I got to teach at a university and I'm talking about a top 10 school. I got to teach at a university, a college course for credit for a number of years, and I don't have a master's degree. I don't know if you understand how rare that is. It's a huge achievement. The reason is that universities don't like to have someone as a professor that hasn't completed an advanced degree. It's kind of counterintuitive to the whole academic world. But Temple University allowed me to do that and invited me to do that. And Mike Guglielmo and Stephen Pizer both had a huge hand in that, along with the chairman of the school at the time, Deanna Geddes, G-E-D-D-E-S. But I think of those three people, Stephen had the best or the most impact in helping me navigate the world of being an academic. And being an academic is tough enough, but being a professor when you don't have a master's degree, that requires a whole nother set of, I don't even want to get into explaining it. It's very (laughs) rare. There's an entire body of people that it's their job to decide who gets to teach at a university and they all want PhDs and things like that. So to me, it's one of my top three most crowning achievements. And Stephen had a lot of influence in not just only making that happen, but also teaching me how to be a teacher at that level. And I think that would be one. Another one I would have to say would be today, not because they helped me recently or helped me be who I became, but I think he's one of the most impressive people that I've met in recent years that would actually take my call. And that's Anoop Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. Anoop is the CEO and founder of a company called SeekOut. SeekOut is a sourcing research tool. But what's really impressive, forget what the tool does. What's really impressive about Anoop is that 
he's the real deal. He spent a lot of time at Microsoft. I believe he was there for more than 20 years. And he was a former professor of computer science at Stanford. So he taught computer science at Stanford, retired as a distinguished scientist from Microsoft after 20 years, worked directly with Bill Gates, and is one of the few people that really shares my passion for finding ways that technology can really augment human productivity in research, in the field of research. And he gets it. I don't know whose calls he would take, but he definitely would take my call. If I called <laughs> practically any time during the day or night, he would answer the phone. And he's something of a guru in the space of computer science and whatnot. So I think that's an impressive person. Now, he probably would also take your call, but that's just kind of how he is. You see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's not that. It's just he's someone that I think is one of the highest intellects that I've encountered over the years that has kind of impressed me and would take my call. <laughs> so there's a few names there. Deanna and Michael Guglielmo and Stephen Pizer and Anubgupta. And I think there's others, too, just going way back in time. There are some people that deserve that. Well, let's give everybody an excuse to buy your book, so don't give all the names. <laughs> turn, turn to page 39, or, or no, that was the second chapter. That was the beginning of yeah, the, part two. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, man. Well, you've done a lot of things. Your business is booming. You've got this charity, or charities, I should say, that sound to me like something that belong in your epitaph as well. That's something that I think is pretty impressive. I love what you're doing. I like that you're really... The whole, the, the blind and deaf being the best recruiters and sourcers, I've got to assume that that's perplexing to you, at least at first when you figured that out. I know it was for me. That's true. So I guess I need to make a room on, on there for a fourth line. So brought sourcing into the world, wrote the book, taught without a advanced degree, and then the foundation would be number four. But you know what? It's, if you ever want to dispel a myth, you start with making the most horrible assumption you can possibly make. And the world will come around and teach you a lesson if you're open to it. So I started with the foundation. I started with this now, in retrospect, ridiculous assumption, let's just call it what it is, prejudice, that we would go out to organizations for the deaf and the blind, and we would be able to provide them with means to find their way back into employment. The community of blind, for example, have a horrible it's 85% of the people who are blind are actively looking for jobs and can't find it. I mean, involuntary unemployment or, you know, the, the people that are actively looking for work, it's huge. That's a big number. We were like, oh, we can make a huge impact by going into this field. Well, we learned a lot of lessons. And one of the most important lessons was going into the foundation. We thought, well, blind people are going to make the best recruiters because they can't see. So they're going to be really closely focused and paying attention on the phone. And they probably make up for their lack of sight by enhancing these other or being able to focus on these other abilities like picking up nuances in conversation and so on. And deaf people are going to make the best sorcerers because they can't hear. So they're going to have great focus on what they're looking at on the screen and so on. Well, we could actually be more wrong. It turned out to be exactly the opposite. We found through our work in the foundation that the blind make really good sorcerers. And the deaf make really good recruiters. Now, there's a little bit of there's some explanation there because that's kind of a almost like when you hear that, you're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. But the reason is that by and large, people who have lost their hearing or were born without it, if they have not everyone, but if they're eligible for a cochlear implant or can use some sort of aid that allows them to enhance what little hearing they have. And they choose to do so because there's also a segment of the hearing impaired and deaf community that do not want to use technology to enhance their hearing. And they prefer to simply not hear. And that's well within their right. But there are people who have use of technology to improve some of their hearing. In those cases, when they go out into the world, most of this technology is really good at picking up sound and amplifying it. But that has a very bad effect of if you're in a room with other people the sound is being amplified is all of the sound from the entire room. So they're picking up the noises from the back of the room that you and I completely tune out. So the technology is helping them hear, but it's helping them hear everything. It's like when you watch the movies about Superman or Supergirl or whatever, and they can hear everything. It actually is a problem because they actually can hear everything, which means everything is too loud. 
So the same thing happens with this technology. So as a result, we found that the technology is really good when it connects to a phone, a cell phone or a smart device or even a desk phone, because they can tune out and amplify just the sound of the conversation and tune all the other stuff out that's happening in around the room. And they're actually really good at focusing on a call because of the technology, assuming that they choose to use the technology. Not all of them do. And then the blind was very surprising because what I did not know was they can read. Blind people can read faster than you and I. They have software. Yes. They read at something like 450 words per minute. That's amazing. They have software that allows them to read a screen faster than you and I can. And so it turns out that they really are very good at sourcing. So just you look at that and you go, wow, that is totally not what I expected. Now, you know, blind people can also make good recruiters and deaf people can make good sourcers. I'm not saying that it's always the opposite, but we were just very shocked to find out just how different our perception was from what really happens. It's amazing. We will wrap up. Thank you, Shell. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. I'm really glad you made it through the whole show. It tells me that you found it entertaining and enjoyed the content. In the spirit of helping us continue to provide such great content and amazing guests, we appreciate your participation through Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash networkwise. Your support really helps. Also, if you or someone you know is looking for a career change, is building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com. Not only does this platform offer you a plethora of resources, but will walk you through how to expedite the outcomes and the aforementioned goals that you seek. Thanks again for listening. Make it a great day. And remember to always network wise.